are the top five college football players of all time? Which Heisman winners had the greatest individual seasons? And which runner-up really deserved that trophy? My guest covers all that and more right here. It's time for the College Football Legends Podcast. The players. We're going to hit somebody and we're taking down the field. Protect them. I guarantee you that. The coaches. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The plays. There goes Davis! Oh my God! Davis is going to run it all the way back! And so much more. College football legends. Heroes come and go, but legends live forever. Believe in college football legends on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Chris Smith. There are over 120 FBS college football programs. Add another buck 20 plus in the FCS. Now that's a ton of schools with a lot of players roaming the field. We've seen all the lists of the college football greatest players of all time and who put up the most historical seasons, so there is no one better to break it all down than our special guest on the show, Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. Let me tell you, there's some great articles on there for you. He's also tweeting out the knowledge on Twitter at Heisman Pundit. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. All right, let's start right there with a few of your tweets I found very interesting. First, you listed your top five college players of all time based on career accomplishments and cultural impact on the game. Make your case for each, starting with Glenn Davis, halfback Army. Absolutely. Glenn Davis was a uh, three-time top two finisher on the Heisman. He finished uh, second in the Heisman in 1944, finished second in the Heisman in 1945, and then he won the Heisman outright in 1946. So he's a guy who probably came as close as anyone ever did to winning three straight Heisman, uh, even more so than Archie Griffin, who won two. Um, he was a guy uh, at a time, uh, World War II, he played for Army, and he was part of the famous Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside backfield with Doc Blanchard. Yep. And he was Mr. Outside. And so uh, just as, a, as an impactful player, he was about as well-known and probably, you know, as uh, – popular as any player had been in college football up to that point. He was just a, a kind of a larger than life figure. He had his nickname. They were part of an army dynasty that, that uh, won a bunch of games in a row and, and routinely dismantled teams. And uh, he and his teammate uh, set a bunch of records. So he, in the, in the consciousness of college football, but of the country at the time, uh, he loomed pretty large. Dope Walker, halfback SMU. Similar type situation. Uh, this was sort of the the Southwest version of Davis, and so he was a uh, Golden Bay type uh, who appeared on magazine covers. Uh, he was on the cover of Live Magazine at one point. I think so was Davis. These are two uh, what I call crossover uh, players who crossed over into wider culture. Dope Walker has an award for the running back named after him. Uh, he also finished uh, in the top three of the Heisman three times. He finished third as a sophomore in 1947, and then he won the Heisman in 1948 as a junior, and then he finished third uh, as a senior. So, again, uh, three uh, really high finishes in the Heisman, sort of a uh, great all-around player. Uh, of course, back then, everyone was an all-around player, uh, but he sort of seemed to elevate himself higher than almost all the other players of that era. Archie Griffin. Running back, Ohio State. Archie Griffin, who it speaks for itself, uh, the two Heismans, something that I think will probably never be done. Uh, he not only finished uh, second 
uh, in the high, uh, sorry, uh, he not only won two Heisman's, uh, he also finished, I think, fifth or sixth in uh, his sophomore year. Yes. And so he, he had a great impact on the Heisman. And even more so, he won those two Heisman's. Archie has been an incredible ambassador on behalf of the Heisman. Uh, I would, you know, dare say that he is unofficially Mr. Heisman in that regard. He understands more than anybody uh, what a great impact the Heisman has had and, and how it can be used to uh, to spread good messages and, and uh, uh, encourage people uh, to excel. So he's uh, really embraced that in his post-Heisman period. So he is just one of these guys. Uh, and again, he's uh, in the Midwest. You have uh, Walker in the Southwest. You have Glenn Davis, kind of a Northeast kind of guy. Uh, we go to our next one. Herschel Walker, running back, Georgia. Herschel Walker, uh, another three-time top three finisher, uh, one of the few we've had. Uh, finished third as a freshman. Many argue he could have won it or should have won it as a freshman. He might have won it as a junior, except uh, he went up against uh, Marcus Allen's 2,000-yard rushing season. Yeah, and then in 1982, uh, he uh, finally won the Heisman. And just from a cultural impact, uh, the this is about the time when I started coming up watching college football. And uh, Herschel Walker was seen as uh, uh, almost supernatural as a player at the time. Uh, his The things that he was able to do at that size, that speed. And uh, he was one of those guys who just – he just went by that first name. People knew him as Herschel. Uh, and so I think that he was a guy for three years in college football. It was arguably uh, in the top, you know, th- the best player or, or within the top three of, of all players at all times. So uh, he just really put out a great career. And I think his career and his, him as a player looms very large in Heisman history. Tim Tebow, quarterback, Florida. Tim Tebow, uh, who did a few things. One, he became the first underclassman to win the Heisman. And that was a huge uh, hurdle to overcome. Yeah. Massive. He, yeah. And he, um, again, was a sort of a, had a cult like following in Florida as a freshman. And when he helped Florida win the national title and, and as he won a Heisman as a sophomore, and then in his subsequent seasons uh, as a junior, he finished third of the Heisman, but got the most first place votes. Uh, and then he later was another was a Heisman finalist as a senior as well. But this was a guy, again, who three times was in the running for the Heisman, just like a lot of these other guys we talked about earlier. And uh, being able to compete for the Heisman realistically three years in a row to win the Heisman as a sophomore, he put up stupendous numbers, won a national title uh, as a junior and as a freshman. So this is a guy who I think culturally, again, uh, ironically, a lot of players, when they uh, reach a certain level of fame, they go by the the single name, Bo or Herschel. But everyone just always says Tim Tebow. It just sounds good to say Tim Tebow. And he's just one of these guys that everyone seems to know who he is. And, and of course, he obviously has uh, a lot of impact or a lot of uh, input on cultural issues as well. So I think that's where he resonates. So those five players, I think, uh, from a cultural standpoint, are uh, have stood out the most to me. We're speaking with Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. And let's go to the top five closest Heisman races. 09, Mark Ingram edges out Toby Gerhardt. 85, Bo Jackson narrowly beats Chuck Long. 61, Ernie Davis slips by Bob Ferguson. 53, John Latner. 
And 01, Eric Crouch sneaks by Rex Grossman. If you had the power to change one winner with the runner-up, who would be most deserving of that bunch? Wow, that's a good question. Um, If I had to pick one, I would probably pick Toby Gearhart. That was obviously the closest one. I thought that the 1,800 yards, I think he had 27 touchdowns. Mark Ingram had a good, solid year, but his numbers... Alabama, they had never won a Heisman winner. They had never had a Heisman, and I think there's a lot of sentiment for getting Alabama the high, its first Heisman. Uh, you know, there's a sentiment there among Heisman voters. Not that Ingram didn't deserve it. I think both Ingram and Gerhardt are uh, both deserving, or would have both been deserving had, you know, depending on who won. But I think Gerhardt might have the best case of the bunch here because he had a really fantastic year, and Stanford was only 8-4 and four that year, so Maybe he didn't get as much attention as he could have, but it was an extremely close race. And it's interesting as Stanford hasn't had a Heisman winner since uh, Jim Plunkett, but they have had six Heisman runners up. And Toby Gearhart uh, was the second of those. Uh, but the first of the recent stretch where Stanford started sending uh, players to New York and finishing second in the Heisman. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride, it seems like. Exactly. And. <laughs> Who are the top two Heisman winners with the greatest individual seasons, in your opinion, in all of college football history? I mean, this is obviously a, a term of art. Uh, it's a subjective opinion. I, I think there's one which stands a, a, you know, above and beyond all of them, and that is Barry Sanders' 1988 season. He had 2,628 rushing yards. He had 106 receiving yards. He had 421 kickoff return yards, and he had uh, 95 punt return yards. When you look at but what he was able to do, uh, I think it was something like 39 touchdowns. He single-handedly kind of obliterated all the other seasons, uh, just in, just an amazing uh, array of statistics. Uh, again, 37 rushing touchdowns. He had a punt return touchdown. He had a kickoff return touchdown. Uh, his all-purpose uh, numbers were were off the charts. It's just I don't think we'll ever see a season like that 1988 season by Barry Sanders. Statistically, if you look at Heisman, uh, the top Heisman players, uh, as far as like the statistics for what years had the highest uh, all-purpose or uh, total offense, Barry Sanders is able to uh, is the only running back who is able to put up enough numbers to compete with the quarterbacks because quarterbacks typically are able to notch uh, uh, numbers quicker through the air. So uh, if you look at the top total offense players in Heisman history. The only running back to, to get up there is Barry Sanders, and it's a real testament to how well he did. The other, uh, the second best season, I would probably go with the best uh, quarterback season. There's a lot of great seasons, especially in the last 10 years, but I'm beginning to more and more think that Joe Burrow's season last year might just have been the, the second best season in Heisman history. Just the, the sheer terror of numbers, you know, 4,715 yards passing 48 touchdowns he had another three scores on the ground and then completing 78 percent of his passes the team goes undefeated wins a national title uh, i've never seen a quarterback who was that unstoppable uh against such high level competition so if i had to choose it'd be those two guys yeah and going back real quick to sanders not only was he great in college he was great in the pros i want to talk about the uh 2015 heisman race heisman rewind and it wasn't the closest, but it, it always fascinated me where Henry sets the SEC rushing record. And you mentioned the great Herschel Walker. He passed his record. But then over at Stanford, Christian McCafferty broke Barry Sanders' NCAA single season record for all purpose yards. 
What was your perspective on why McCaffrey didn't win? Okay, so we have Derrick Henry, Christian McCaffrey, Deshaun Watson, Baker Mayfield. That's a really good, really good Stacked, uh, final yeah. four. Those are the those are the finalists that year. Now, it's one of those things where we could, we have the ability to look back and we say, "Wow, look at look at those four names." But they were all at different stages of of uh, development, of course. And so you have uh, Baker Mayfield was really good as a redshirt junior, but he wasn't quite as good as he was going to be the next year. Deshaun Watson, outstanding as a sophomore, but uh, again, not as good as he he would end up being, you know, the following year. Christian McCaffrey had his best year, and then Derrick Henry had a really outstanding year for the Alabama team that was that went for the national title. I think the reason why McCaffrey didn't win the Heisman that year over Henry was the nature of of what he was doing and the importance of it as far as challenging Barry Sanders' all-purpose yardage mark. It was one of those things that developed slowly as the year went on, and, and you don't really notice how big it is until it really stares you in the face. I think unfairly or fairly, Stanford being on a you – know, McCaffrey was on a Stanford team that, that wasn't really uh, in the national conversation, and I think that Alabama being in the national conversation and people seeing Henry doing what he did on a – on a, on a weekly basis. Yeah, the, break, the breakout game against LSU, which where they thought Leonard Fournette was also a Heisman candidate. Right, right. Uh, and, and also, it also there's there's a little bit of a, uh, again, it's a, a little bit of a taste as to what you like in, in your player. If you look at Derrick Henry, he was a big bruising back. He really was dominant down the stretch. I think he had uh, three 200-yard games in a four-game four stretch. That really seemed to clinch it for him uh, at the end of the season. And uh, I think he ended with four 200-yard games in the last six. And he was also a huge workhorse. Against Auburn, he had 46 attempts. And against Florida, he had 44 attempts. And these were sort of – it kind of made him a throwback to an era, which maybe a lot of Heisman winners or Heisman voters think back to, that great 70s era of those great running backs. So, sure. so something about – it was something about Henry, uh, if you like that style. He was your guy. He's the epitome of, of that big, bruising style. And if that's the kind of thing you like in a, in a running back, then, then maybe that's the kind of thing that impresses you. McCaffrey, uh, what it really is, it was his all-around ability that really uh, excited people. Yeah, real and, Swiss Army uh, knife. Yeah, he, was, uh, he could catch the ball, punt return, kick returns, you know, phenomenal uh, just all-around player. And it was a pretty close race, but uh, it's just one of those things where um, – I think you go back to McCaffrey being a sophomore, and I think some people thought, well, this is his first time here, and then, you know, if we don't get him this time, we'll get him next time. You were talking about Derrick Henry's Heisman campaign. It seemed that Nick Saban really left him in the game and to amass more stats. Have you seen <clears throat> coaches help their candidate like that? Oh, I, I think there's no doubt in my mind that, that the office coordinator for Alabama, uh, Lane Kiffin, who is historically known for being very aware of stats, I think he definitely thought, I'm going to not only help my team win this game because Henry at that point was an unbelievable workhorse. I mean, it's almost mind-boggling for us to think about 46 carries in a game these days. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And so Alabama decided they were going to ride that horse to victory, and it was a totally justifiable decision. And it also, they also knew that in riding that horse, they were going to help that horse get uh, accolades at the end of the season. So um, I think that was definitely, it was definitely a, a factor, but I think it was a, it was a completely justified factor. It was one of those situations where 
where it all kind of came together. But I, I do think there are situations where uh, maybe the game's in hand and you, and you know that your player has a chance to do something special with the Heisman voters, so you give a little bit of freedom to, to show us stuff. I think that happens once in a while. Yeah, and we're speaking with Chris Houston, Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com. Actually, with another tweet you had with the recent celebration of 150 years of college football, there was a list going around of 150 greatest college football players with Jim Brown as number one. Did you agree with that? Uh, I don't agree with that, and there's there's a few reasons why. These kinds of lists, you know, they're always kind of fun to, to play with, but their goal is to get people to talk. Uh, and But these lists also, they suffer from a couple flaws every time they do them. One, they, they, they suffer from the recency bias. And so when you look at players on that list, you'll see a lot more who are from recent eras when the people who made the list <clears throat> are more likely to have seen these players. And so it ends up creating a lot of short shrift for players who played a long time ago before their exploits were, were known uh, to the current generation. And then you have the other issue of that mistake we make of looking at players in the NFL uh, and how they did in the NFL and then extrapolating that back into their college rankings. You have players on that list who uh, didn't always have the biggest impact in college. Uh, Jim Brown was obviously a great player in college, but he had a much greater impact in the NFL than he did at the college level. Uh, there are other players that are included on the list who were outstanding NFL players. Um, but I just don't think that, uh, uh, some of the older players, uh, Glenn Davis, uh, not be among the top 10 college football players of all time, uh, seems pretty remarkable. Uh, and there's a few other players, uh, back in that era who I think would also have to make an argument for that. I mean, you want to talk about Tom Harmon. Uh, no one talked about Tom Harmon. Uh, he averaged 387 all purpose yards a game the year he won the Heisman. Yeah, just, that's... uh, just incredible numbers that he was playing both ways. Yeah, so, uh, and we forget, and it's also hard, like you said, separate between NFL careers and the college football career. Right, of course. And and then people also say, well, it's hard to compare errors, and that's completely fine. But if you look at the list of 150, you know, Jim Brown's from, uh, you know, from the mid-50s. And some of these other guys, uh, they do include a few uh, of the older guys. And um, so if you're going to include a few of them, you have to really, I think, uh, look at everyone fairly if, if you're not going to differentiate for errors but if you are going to differentiate for, error, differentiate for errors then then that should be you know stated clearly before you make such a list exactly and going back who was the first breakout underclassman who set the tone that it was okay to vote for a freshman or sophomore uh, well i mean you'd have to go to personal walker to really be the first guy to make a push for it as a true freshman he was definitely uh giving george rogers and and uh, hugh green a run for their money back then but I think that once Tim Tebow won the Heisman in 2007 as a true sophomore, I think the floodgates opened from there. And that's, if you actually look at it, you know, since Tim Tebow's Heisman win, you have sophomore, sophomore, junior, junior, redshirt freshman, redshirt freshman, junior, junior, and sophomore. Then you come to Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield was the only senior in a stretch that went from 2007 to 2018 and of course Joe Burrow was a senior last year and of course now we're having this sort of new thing that's affecting the Heisman which is the preponderance of transfers either grad transfers or people who at a very early point in their careers are able to transfer quickly 
and uh, make an impact right away somewhere at an elite level. Yeah, the transfer portal is open. Yep. And you were talking about sophomores and uh, freshmen and juniors winning the award. And you think back to how Archie won it twice, and he's the only one to do so. How tough is it, and what factors are you playing against when you are a freshman or sophomore to win it again? Because the player could have a better statistical season, but you're almost playing against yourself. That's 100% true, Chris. Uh, the number one obstacle to repeating as a Heisman winner is, is your own season that you won it yourself, your own uh, standards that you set. Uh, you automatically, if you don't do what you did the previous year, unless it's a situation where no one else has has come up with a really good season too, then people are going to perceive it as not being as good. You will you would not have progressed. So it's just really hard. And there's also the factor of as you the more you play, the more the more uh, you are a, a focus of opposing teams, and the more people start to figure you out. And the more you are prone to maybe getting injured because, you know, you've got this many more snaps under your belt and the pressure becomes greater. It's a whole variety of factors. And then you have whatever Johnny come lately, hot shot underclassman is come waiting in the wings, ready to ready to have a great year. So there's just a ton of competition. And uh, the expectations game is what tends to sink uh, second attempts at Heisman. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there will be another two-time winner, but hopefully there will be. Okay, it's time for Chris Houston of Heisman.com to go for two. Get that kicker out of there. Two final points. That's right. A pair of lighter questions to finish up. So which will come first, a Heisman-winning defensive player or another wide receiver winning the Heisman Trophy? Another wide receiver. Defense doesn't have a chance, huh? They've got a chance, but I but I think a receiver will happen before that because receivers can put up some crazy numbers these days. And you get a person who is a great receiver putting up crazy numbers and then throwing a couple uh, punt returns, a kickoff returns, maybe a reverse or two. Yeah, some of these guys who who have some crazy talent uh, have a shot as a receiver to really uh, to make a name for themselves in the Heisman. Yeah, and like we were talking about coaches, maybe the coaches will push to get the ball in their hands a lot more. And last but not least, I'm a foodie, and I know you're out in Ireland right now, but I want to see if there is a coastal bias. If you were to point me to one legendary meal, would it be in Los Angeles or New York? Which coast are we going with? Well, I'm from Los Angeles, but I live in New York. Are we looking at high level or, or low level? What What's meal? your best? If you were to point me to one place, like if you're in LA, you have to go here. If you're in New York, you have to try this. Okay, so if, uh, if you're in New York, I, I would try Prince Street Pizza. I think the best pizza in New York it's in Soho. Uh, of course, it's on Prince Street, uh, and it's uh, during the lockdowns. Saturdays was uh, was our pizza day, and uh, knowing that every Saturday was going to have a nice, juicy uh, Prince Street pepperoni. Oh. Uh, it was one of the best parts that kept me going through the lockdown. So that was uh, really exciting. Uh, definitely recommend that. And as far as L.A. goes, um, there's this great hamburger. You know, Los Angeles is the hamburger capital of the world, I, I maintain to this day. So uh, it's easy to say, you know, you should go to In-N-Out. Uh, but I think going a little deeper and, and recommending a, a, a hamburger spot that's that's unique to LA. And I would go with uh, this place called Hunano's, which is on Washington Boulevard in Venice next to uh, CNO's Trattoria. So I think that's the best burger in LA. See, there is no bias in the media. I'm telling you right now. We've been talking with <laughs> Chris Houston, 
Heisman historian and editor at Heisman.com, where you can get some great articles. Also, he's tweeting out the knowledge on Twitter at Heisman Pundit. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the College Football Legends podcast. Tweet your questions at The Sports Jesus. That's at The Sports Jesus. And join us next week, because it will be legendary. Legendary.